we find this week's Parsha as well as, well, both Parshas, both in Vayakil and in Pukude, we find this little recurrent item which usually gets passed over. The um, bottom of the page, 228, Pasuk Ches. When it discusses all of the different <coughs> implements of the Mishkan that were made, what they were made of, how they were constructed, what the material was, how it was donated. That's what this parsha deals with a lot. And we find gold, silver, copper, or perhaps it was a bronze rather than a copper, used throughout the Mishkan. Then we find this little blurb over here. Let's just read the words. Vayas es hakior the laver which was used. See, he makes this laver out of copper. It's it's base also out of copper or bronze. The maros hatsoivos. Maros means the mirrors. Hatsoivos from the word sevo. Sevo means legions and hosts and multitudes. Hashem tsevokos. The uh, Jews were let out of Egypt in in hosts legions if you will so in the mirrors of the tsovos so it's, it's a obviously a very unusual way to express the idea of the mirrors of the women refers to them as hatsovos where, where did women get uh, because women wore women wore were the ones that used the mirrors but I mean oh so in other words we since it's, it's also mirrors. spoken in feminine gender Maros Hatsavos. Asher Tsavu Pesach Almoid. And again, the word, the root of Tsavo is repeated again. In the mirrors of the, of those, let's, let's translate as congregators. Legions of women that congregated by the entrance of the Almoid. That's how it refers to it. Later on, we find in Parshas Pekudeh, in the beginning of Pekudeh, you find an accounting of all of the gold, the silver, the copper. And if you look on page 230 as well as 231, it gives in the accounting the amount that was collected. It also says what they used it for. And it says on page 231, the, uh, the copper or the bronze which was, which was collected came out to 70 Kikor Valpayim Barbame Oshokal 2,400 Shekel that's the amount of, of copper or bronze collected what do they do with all of that copper? they melted it down and they reformulated and shaped it into the, into the um, I don't know what they call them um, the things that, that supported the, the beams of the Mishkan the sockets Right, so they were informed into the sockets. I'm not sure exactly. The they also made the the copper altar that was used for the um, carbonus. The, the regular altar was made of copper, as well as the clay hamizbeach. The different utensils used for the mizbeach were also made from the um, from the 
from this copper. That's all it mentions them regarding the copper. It does not mention anywhere not the amount of copper weight or quantity that was donated by the women vis-a-vis their, regarding their mirrors, nor does it mention the copper being used for the making of the labor. Again, we find, in any case, it doesn't mention the fashioning of the labor, the kior, at this point. Merely later on, it talks about when the kior was fashioned out of this material. Abarbanel asks a question, therefore, why is it that it was kept separate and apart in terms of the accounting as well as in terms of the utilization of this copper it seems to have been placed as a separate item in its own category what was unusual about this now we find like this we find so therefore the Barbanel asks why is it that we find this as a separate as a separate fashioning of a utensil which came not from the overall and total amount of copper material which they have but rather the overall copper material which had been gathered was earmarked for different aspects of the Mishkan whereas the labor was made exclusively from the mirrors now, what is the, um, how do we understand that these mirrors were made from the tzovos? What is exactly is the meaning of the tzovos? So, if you look in the Targum Unklus, Targum Unklus translates it as follows. V'avad yos kiyoro de nechosho v'yas besisei de nechosho b'mech z'yas neshaya Back on page 228. In the mirrors of the women, the Asyon Litzalah Bisra Mashkan Zimna. From the mirrors of the women that came to the Mishkan in order to pray, in order to daven. That's why Eddie referred to this as the first women's prayer group. It was literally women that came to congregate together, and they congregated together to daven at the Mishkan. So, this is the first instance of a women's prayer group. If you look in Targum Yonas and Benazil in your upper right, he expands on this a little bit. Vavad yas kiyoro de nechosha, v'yas besise, de nechosha, min as aklire de nechosha from the copper or bronze mirrors, nishai of the women, sniusa, these modest women, uviidan do osun litzaloa besramashkan zimna, and when they would come to congregate, to daven, at the gate of the Mishkan, Havon Kaimin al-Korban ad Musayn, u-Meshabchon, u-Moidon, they would come and offer up their offerings, and pray to Hashem, acknowledge Hashem. Apparently the Korbanas referred to here were Korbanas that they brought upon becoming uh, purified, from their state of impurity. The Saivin Lukuvreon, they would return to their husbands, the Yoldan Binin Sadikin, and they would become impregnated and give birth to to righteous children. 
Bizman v'midchan min soyavos dinoin when they became purified from their impurity, in other words, from their nida state or yolda state or whatever. This, of course, mixes several different factors. In fact, if you look in the Balaturim, in the middle left, he points out that the word maros is used only in four occasions in the Torah. We find the word maros used over here we find it used when Hashem spoke to Yaakov and he came to him in a vision at night Vayomer Elohim Yisrael B'maros Halayla B'maros Elohim and we find by Yecheskel the same expression used Maros in other words as the Balatorim this alludes to the following She'elu Hanoshim that we're speaking about very exalted elevated women Soru mitaivus olam. They remove themselves totally from the mundane desires of this world, and rather than involved in the um, in pursuits of vanity, they gave up their vanities. In fact, we even nowadays refer to these things as a vanity mirror. So mirrors represented vanity. So they gave up their vanities. and as a result. They were on such an exalted level that the Spirit of God descended upon them. Now the word sovos, this is what he does with the word maros. He points out that the word sovos is only used in two places in the Torah. One place is, is over here. Sovos, maros, sovos. The other place where it's used, interestingly enough, is something which we recently learned in the Dafyomi, referring to the sons of Eli HaKohen, Pinchas and Chofni, that would abuse the women that came, questions exactly what their abuse was, the Gemara discusses this in a number of places, but it refers to the women that would come to the Mishkan to offer up their sacrifices as Noshim Hatsovos, exact same expression. And it says of there, Asher Yishkavun as Hanoshim Hatsovos, the sons of Eli. Therefore, connects the Balaturim the following. Just as over there, the word Yishkavun means to lay with these women that came to congregate, which either means literally they sexually abused them, or it means, as the Gemara says, they made them delay their. There, because of laziness, they delayed their purification process, and as a result, they came home to their husbands somewhat late, and as a result, they were not able to properly propagate. So over here, it's obviously the reverse. Through these maros, the maros were a kind of an inducement by which the women would lay with their husbands, as the medrash says, that they used the maros in order to seduce their husbands in order to become impregnated by them. What is this referring to? Let's take a look at the medrash in the Tanchuma in the upper left. The medrash in the Tanchuma says the following. When the Jews in Egypt were under the slave labor of Paro, 
Gozar Aleim Paro Shloiu Yishenim Debatayim. Paro decreed that husbands and wives should not sleep together in their own homes. Shloiu Mishamshin Mitosayim in order to somehow discourage and to keep the numbers of Jews down by keeping them away from their wives. Omar Rab Shimon ben Chalaf the Mahoyu benois Yisrael Oisays. What did these righteous daughters of Israel do? Yordos lishov ma'im in ayor. They would go to the rivers and draw water. Vakodesh Boruchu oyom mazmin lem dogim ketanim b'toich kadeim. Hashem would then bring that little fish minnows would somehow get into the water, into their buckets. They would either sell them or cook them, and with the excess funds they would be able to purchase wine. The whole they would then go to the fields where their husbands were working very under, under <coughs> these terrible, excruciatingly difficult conditions. They would give their husbands to eat to refresh them. They would go to the fields. After they would give their husbands to eat, to drink the wine, and they were in a more relaxed state, they would take out mirrors, and they would look into the mirrors together with their husbands. They would look at it and become, I guess you could say, somewhat frivolous in their behavior. Oh, look how I look, look how you look. I'm better looking than you. It's, you know, beauty and the beast over here. And they would discuss their their relative uh, appearances and as a result of this casual talk this would bring a kind of an arousal on the part of the husbands and right there on the spot they would have relations and as a result they'd become pregnant and Hashem would grant them that they should become pregnant immediately thereby. The matter continues later, it goes, digresses a little bit about how many they would give birth to. In the merit of these mirrors, which they would use to look at with their husbands, and which would arouse them to Taiva to the Yetzir Horror, from all of this hard labor that would bring their husbands to the state of arousal in this merit again now is the another play on the words they were able to establish legions and hosts of Jews Shenemar as the Pasuk refers to the Jewish exodus from Egypt as Yotsu called Sivais Hashem Me'eretz Mitzrayim all of these hosts or legions of God left Egypt. As it furthermore says, Hoiti Hashem as B'nai Yisrael may eret Mitzrayim al tzivaisam. So we find the word tzivaos used in the context of the multitudes of Jews that left Egypt. The same word is being used. In other words, this is alluding to the multitudes of Jewish children that came about as a result of these mirrors and what the women did with these mirrors. When Hashem told them to 
build a mishkan. All Jews made certain donations. Mishavi Kesef, Mishavi Zov, and the Choshes, Avnei Shoyim, Avnei Miluim, Heviu, Bezrizus Hakol. The Jews diligently and enthusiastically brought all of the material needs of the Mishkan within three days they had it all collected gold, silver, precious stones, copper everyone gave the raw material so many of these women said what could we donate to the Mishkan they gave up their mirrors now you have to understand something. What does it mean to give up a mirror? What does it mean to give up a mirror? To us it's not a lot because mirrors are made from glass with a little bit of quicksilver in the back of it. Wherever you go you have mirrors. You go into some people's homes and you're surrounded by mirrors. You go into the bathroom, you see 500 of yourselves, you know, uh, in certain <laughs> right? Like as if one isn't enough. Wherever you go, people have mirrors all over. I'm not sure if I, I've told you the story once that when I was in, in England, in London, I was a bachar on my way back from Eretz Yisrael, and I had a date, a shidduch, and um, I wanted to trim my beard, and I was staying by this very, very from people, Chassidish, they originated from Detroit, really, and I remember I noticed I couldn't find a mirror in the bathroom. So I have to trim your beard, put on your tie, whatever it is. So I asked the uh, the lady of the house, maybe you have a mirror somewhere? She said, a mirror? Oh, of course, certainly I have a mirror. And I hear her going into the bedroom and she's rummaging around. And she comes out after a few minutes with a little compact case about this big. That you open it up and there's a tiny mirror inside of it, two inches by two inches. This is the mirror in the house to use to shave. They, they literally didn't have any mirrors. Could you imagine going through life with no mirrors? Mirrors are everywhere. It's no big deal. In the olden days, certainly, they didn't have mirrors. And the only mirrors that they had were they had these highly polished bronze or, or copper mirrors. And that's all you had. If you're living in a wilderness, you're in the desert, and there's no water even to look at your own image. The Gemara and Nazar talks of the Nazar that looked at, saw his image and became narcissistic if you will caught up with himself and mirrors do that but if you don't have a mirror can you imagine going through life never being able to look at a mirror there's no water there's no reflecting pool and you have one mirror and you give it up to the Mishkan that means forever and ever you'll never be able to shave I mean who needs to shave if you, if you have a beard anyway put on your tie men certainly didn't look at mirrors but even women, could you imagine going through life never looking at a mirror? My mother always told me how her aunt used to tell her, as a rule, if you're a woman, never walk by a mirror that you don't look into at your re reflection. <laughs> rule of thumb, don't pass by a mirror without looking into it at yourself. It's vanity, the vanity of women. Could you imagine you own one mirror and you give it up? I mean, it's probably the most precious possession that a person can have. What's more precious than gold and silver? yourself I mean, a person values himself the most and especially your physical appearance giving up the mirror most precious possession in fact at this point let's let's go to the Evan Ezra and the Sforno the Evan Ezra right away describes this on the extreme right <coughs> second piece ki mishpat kol anoshin 
It is the way of all women to try to beautify themselves and to look at their faces, at their, at their bodies in the morning in the mirror. Once a day, for a woman it's okay to look at herself. With glass or copper mirrors. To adjust their hats. As mentioned over there. And he says, This, of course, is the common custom by non-Jewish women as well. And Jewish women, of course, are the same. There were women in those days, God-fearing, God-serving, that, that turned away from the ways of the vanities and the pleasures of this world. And therefore, they gave up their mirrors as a donation. Why? To indicate more than just a donation. Not only are they giving up their most prized, precious possession, but to say, We no longer need this to beautify ourselves. That's it. We're no longer interested in this kind of activity. They would come daily for the purpose of davening and to hear the word of God. And the reason why the word Sovu is used to say that this wasn't just a few women, Kihoyu Rabos, these were multitudes. These were legions of women that would come to daven, to pray, to learn by the Almighty, saying, We no longer need our mirrors. Sforno says the same thing, one second. Lishmoya Divrei Elokim Chaim says the Sforno. They came, Sovu Pesach to hear the word of the living God, as it says, Hashem, all those that seek out God will go to the Ol Moed. For Oison Hanoshim, and these women, Moasu Inyone Tachshitein, they were, at this point, they despised the idea of adornment and jewelry, and therefore Higdishu Marisein, they sanctified, if you will, they donated and sanctified their mirrors, Lohoyres, to demonstrate Shein on Sriches Oidlein that they no longer needed. One. Truth, the two things that we just saw seem to be somewhat exclusive, like you're pointing out. The Ebenezer and the Sforno, seemingly following the approach of the Targum Unculus and the Targum Yonas and Benuzil, and what the Balaturim seems to refer to, <coughs> seems to indicate that the, the greatness of these women lie in the fact that they became spiritualized, they gave up all of these physical desires and the vanities and they became changed individuals and therefore the donation of the mirrors was not only merely a donation and not only something which would be a prized possession by any woman assuming that's your last mirror that you have but it indicated a change in the course of their lives a special change to go from the mundane to the spiritual and therefore the Balaturim says the word maros used over here indicates that in the merit of this of this change in the course of their lives of spiritually elevating themselves they actually became almost prophetic the Ruach Elohim descended on them and they became visionary women they no longer had to look into mirrors because they were able to see clear visions of Hashem even the word used by the Targum Yonas Ben of Aspaklire, the Chosha 
is an expression that we find sometimes used on levels of prophecy, of clarity, of vision. So on the one hand, we find the Evan Ezra, the Sfarnov, the Targum Yonisim and Uziel, the Targum Unkelus, the Balaturim, as talking about the special, the special nature of these women in terms of their giving up the mundane and the physical for the sake of the spiritual. The Tanchum, on the other hand, that we just saw, seems to laud the usage that these mirrors had in the past. Rashi follows the second approach. If you look in Rashi on page 228, Rashi paraphrases the Medrash. Let's see Rashi's paraphrasing of the Medrash. The Maros had soivais, the nois Yisrael hoyu biyot on Maros bohen, sheroyis bohen kishen miskashlois. I mean, as you'll see, this is obviously drawn from the Medrash. Rashi says, the daughters of Israel had these mirrors that they would use to adorn themselves. And they were willing to give this up as well. Moshe and Moshe initially rejected them. Moshe found it displeasing and disgusting because, why? He didn't want to make he didn't want to fashion one of the Mishkan's implements out of utensils and objects used to incite the Yetzirah and that represents and reminds us of the Yetzirah. To which Hashem said, Omer Le'akodesh Baruch Hu Kabel, accepted from them. Ki elu chavivin olayim in this is the most beloved by me of all. Shal yideyem hemidu hanoshim tzavois rabbis b'mitzrayim. Because on account of these mirrors, the women established hosts and legions of Jews. The wives would use the mirrors to seduce their husbands. They would then cause their husbands to be aroused. They would then have relations with them right there. They would then later on, months later, go back to the same spot and give birth in the fields. As it says in the Pasuk, where it says, Beneath the apple tree, I aroused you. So this refers to the initial state of arousal in the fields that came as a result of these mirrors. That's why it says, referring to the Maros at why was the Kior specifically made from this? Says Rashi, because ultimately one of the functions of the labor, although not its primary one, is used to be part of the ingredient of what we give the Sota, the woman suspected of unfaithfulness, to drink. If a husband is jealous of his wife and she is suspected of adultery, if we go back to the Medrash, the Medrash follows this thing, but there's a crucial difference between the way Rashi has it and the way the Medrash has it. We're right now about six lines from the bottom of the Medrash, the Tadchum in the upper left, six lines from the bottom of that piece. Kishiro Moshe Oison, 
when they brought these mirrors and Moshe saw what they brought for donation he became angry he became so distraught that he told the and he became outraged by it even to the degree of where he told the other Jews hit these women look at the chutzpah of what they're doing what do we use mirrors for? It's for Yetzirah, for lust, to incite these things. Fech! Who wants such a thing in the Mishkan? How did it even occur to the, the women to even think of that? Something like this? Yeah. It's such an odd... No. Hashem said to Moshe, Moshe al-Eiluatamavaza, you're demeaning and you're, and you're making fun and you're, you're shaming them for this? These mirrors produced all of these multitudes of Jews. Tol mehen, take it from them. Use it for the labor to wash the Kohanim. That from this labor the Kohanim sanctify themselves before they're able to enter to do the Avotim. Every day the labor must be used by a Kohen before he approaches the Beis HaMikdash to do any avoda, to do any act of divine service in the Beis HaMikdash, he has to first sanctify himself from the waters of the Kiyar. Through all of these mirrors that accounted for the legions of Jews that were created literally from these mirrors. So what we have over here is we have different usages of the word tzavos. Tzavos is either referring to the women themselves that congregated around the Mishkan to pray, to learn, to daven, to hear the word of God as per the Evan Ezra, the Sforno, the Targum Unkelos, the Targum Yonas and Benozil. But then based on this Medrash and Rashi and the Balaturim alludes to it as well and it refers to the multitudes of Jews that were created, the hosts and legions of Jews that came about as a result of these self-same mirrors. Actually, the Targum Yonis of Uziel seems to combine both ideas. It refers to these women that were very highly spiritual, but it says they would go home to their husbands and as a result become impregnated and give birth to Sadiqim. Now, we have here as a result of all of this a number of questions. The first and obvious question is that based on what we see from the Ebenezer, that the that the um, mirrors, this most precious of possessions, were donated by the women and they gave up their life of mundane physical vanity to become elevated spiritually. I mean, this is a tremendous, tremendous type of a donation. The idea of giving it all up is like a nazir. And, and in one sense, a Nazir who is, who is Erlach is considered a great act. Although we find that a Nazir is considered a sinful act, that's only because most Nazirim aren't totally sincere or shouldn't be doing what they're doing. But in the famous story of the Nazir of Shimon ben Shetach, that also was a resultant from a Nazir who felt incited by his Yetzir Hora on account of his viewing his own image in the water Shimon ben Shetach said this 
is the prime example of a Nazar. May there be more Nazars like you in Israel. Gomorrah in the dorm, Gomorrah and Nazar brings down this story. So seemingly that's what these women were. How could Moshe reject their offering? This is one of the most noble offerings of all. As the Gemara says, Gemara says in uh, Kedushin, Davches, Rashi says over there, the greatest mitzvah of all, above and beyond any of the positive mitzvahs in the Torah, is to conquer your Yetzir horror and to subdue it, to subjugate it. The Mokum Shabale Tshuva Aymdin, we know Tzadik and Gemurin cannot stand. A Baal Tshuva, a person who has to overcome himself and becomes a changed individual, is on the highest level. We know that the reward is is, com- is commensurate to the pain that a person has. No pain, no gain. Schar l'fiatzar. How could Moshe reject such a thing? Doesn't he understand the greatness of this offering? Hashem likewise doesn't respond to him according to the way we're explaining it. I mean, Hashem should have said, what do you mean Moshe? How could you reject this? This is such a wonderful thing. Hashem gives a whole different rationale as to why he's accepting it. Why was this... We have the Abarbanel's question that we mentioned earlier. Why was the copper were not mixed with the other donations? Why, a fourth question, why does Rashi change the usage of the kior from the obvious and primary function, which the Medrash says, which is the function of a coin entering and sanctifying himself. In fact, it's a tremendous thing. You now create the labor that the same way that you're going through a kind of transition and metamorphosis from the mundane to the sanctified, and you're giving up your mirrors, this now becomes the instrument in the Beis HaMikdash and the Mishkan, whereby a coin also goes from the mundane, from the Chol El HaKodesh. He goes from Chol to Kodesh through this, through this process through the labor, through the kiyar. So the kiyar represents the transition, the metamorphosis of a person who goes from a state of the mundane and the plain to that of the spiritual state of prophecy and the like as the Balaturim himself brings down. So why does... That's what the labor is used for. That's what the Medr says. Along comes Rashi and gives us a secondary usage of the kiyar a very uncommon one, must have only occurred on rare occasions, and he says that the purpose of the kior is to promote peace. Exactly how does it promote peace? Basically what it means is the following, that if a husband is unsure of his wife's faithfulness, the purpose of the kior then was to ascertain her guilt or innocence. Obviously she's guilty, she's guilty. But the idea is that uh, I would assume that at least in the majority of cases if the woman claims innocence, the kior establishes that fact, and therefore it brings a measure of, and the reward is to have children, correct, right? That's an addition. But it reestablishes the harmony of the Jewish home. Because one of the things that causes the greatest amount of discord between husband and wife is when the husband feels a sense of insecurity and lack of confidence in the wife's faithfulness. This reestablishes that bond, that relationship, the sense of of knowledge that your wife is faithful to you, and thereby it promotes and reestablishes the shalom bias, the harmony in the Jewish home. So therefore Rashi says, the purpose of the kior is likewise to bring about 
this reestablishing of the shalom bias of the home. But that's a very minor <coughs> secondary function of the kiyar that must have only been utilized on rare occasions, not the primary one. Why does Rashi deviate from the medrash in that, sec- in, in that aspect of it? So therefore we have here a number of questions. Probably though, one of the most perplexing questions is a question that I haven't yet addressed. All Jews of generous spirit came to donate all of the material needs of the Mishkan and its implements. What do they do? The men above and beyond the women or together with the women came all those of generous spirit Heviu, Choch, Bonezem, the Tabaz, the Kumaz, the Kol, Kli, Zov, Kolish, Asher, Heinib, Tnufa, Zov, Hashem. They brought all the gold that they had. They didn't have golden ingots. How did they have gold? They didn't have gold bars. They brought their jewelry. They brought their bracelets, anklets. They brought nose rings, earrings, finger rings. Then it's a question as to what some of these items are. The Evanezer translates kumaz as a kind of a bracelet worn on the arm. It was a bracelet worn on the arm. The Gemara in Shabbos, Daf Samach Dawud, says that the word kumaz is a contraction of three words. And the items that they brought were not only rings and things that they wore on their hands and feet and ears and noses, but they brought, I mean, we don't even have some of these kinds of adornments, they brought jewelry that's worn on the chest of a woman for the purpose of, I don't know exactly what, but it was a kind of a gold jewelry worn on the body, on her chest. Another item that they brought was the kumas, which the Gemara and Shabbos, Daf says, is a contraction of three words, kan mokom zima, which means, here is the spot of lewdness. In other words, it was a kind of a adornment worn, which it wasn't for the purpose of chastity, but at least it was kind of like a chastity belt. But it wasn't for the purpose of chastity, it was quite the contrary. It was for the purpose of zima. And kan mokam zima, this is the spot of zima. Because it's actually highlighting the body parts that lead to taiva. What was this gold used for? Well, we know what it was used for. It was used for the shulchan, for the menorah, for the mizbeach, for the arna kodesh, for the kaporis, for the kruvim. It housed the ten tablets. It was the Mekruvim. From here emanated God's word to the Jewish people. Prophecy came from here. Moshe apparently had no difficulty whatsoever in accepting these things. He accepted it. It's much worse than mirrors. And it was used more than just for the labor. It was used for the for the clay Mishkan. Why is it that Moshe was able to accept these items with no problem, no difficulty. The kumas he was able to accept, but the mirrors he had problems with. Why is that the case? Why should that be? So let's take a look at the Ramban. The Ramban is the third piece on your right. The Ramban explains, Apparently there was no question of accepting all kinds of jewelry from the women. Vakumas, according to the Medrash, 
is more despicable than a mirror. Yet, as although it was more despicable, it was more accepted, and it was utilized even for a more holy purpose. Teret says the Ramban, is Avosham this Arvo called Hanedava, but over there, the entire gold was mixed together. He doesn't mention another aspect of it, which is that it was melted down. But to make an exclusively designed implement from a from a, from something which was made for the Yitzhar, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu rejected. Until Hashem told him, "No, in this case, I want you to accept it." Actually, this is more than just a mere philosophical or academic interest. There are all kinds of shilas and shuvas brought down in Simon Kufmem Zion, in Shulchan Aruch, the Morgan Avram over there, and the El Yerabah discuss if people donate garments to a shul and you want to use it for, uh, say, for Torah, and you want to use it for parochas and the like, as well as the Chassam Soifer talks about a different question, wax from a house of candles from a house of, from a church that you want to remelt and reshape to be used for a basic nessus. is melting it and reshaping it sufficient melting it down and they all bring down the kumas as as a model Moshe Rabbeinu accepted the kumas yet we find that he rejected the maros and they draw these two distinctions the questions which of the distinctions is the is the crucial one? Do you need both? One, the other? Which one is it? Apparently, there were two differences between the mirrors and the kumas. The kumas was melted down and reshaped. It's not clear if that's what happened to the mirrors. The mirrors were these highly polished things. They were apparently beaten into this into this thing, but it was never really melted down and reformulated and reshaped into it. That's why we find the Kiyar separately mentioned from the sockets and the Mizbeach and the other instruments because although this is also made of copper the other ones were made of the total raw material of copper which was probably then melted down and made into copper bars like gold bars that they made for the gold and silver bars for the silver and from the silver bars and the gold bars and the copper bars they reshaped them and formulated them into the Kruvim, into the Menorah, into the Shulchan, into the Mizbeach, into the utensils, into whatever was made, the sockets. This, for whatever reason, was a separate donation, viewed and made and fashioned separately, not melted down, and therefore the original appearance was still somewhat there. That is a question as to whether that's acceptable or not. And therefore you find in all of these shuvas, the Chsam Seifer, the Marsham, they discuss candles being melted is melting sufficient They bring, uh, and that's the other second crucial difference in the case of the Choch Nezem and Kumaz they were melted down and mixed with other things as part of a total amount of gold this could be an ingredient however the Kiyar was made exclusively from the mirrors of the women that's what Moshe didn't want to accept Says Rup Shamshun Rafal Hirsch along these lines. This is what the Ramban basically says. But the Ramban is not clear as to what the distinction is. Let's read the words of Rup Shamshun Rafal Hirsch. It is deeply significant that the vessel of the sanctuary, 
which was to represent the moral keeping holy of one's acts and efforts, which is the Kiddush Yodayim Baraglayim that the Kohanim had to use to sanctify themselves upon entering to the base of Migdash, was made out of women's mirrors. Mirrors are articles which lay stress on the physical bodily appearance of people being an object of special consideration, so that it was shown that the physical sensual side of human beings is not merely not excluded from the sphere which is to be sanctified by the Migdash, but that it is the first and most essential object of the sanctification. After all, the rock bottom, as man has complete free will in all moral matters, it is just this side of the human nature which is necessary to come under the influence of the Mikdosh. If the sanctification of life which is aimed at is to be achieved, this designation of the Kiyar emerges with great significance in the laws of Sota, as we've discussed. The wording Marasovs can even be meant to say that the copper mirrors were not melted down but that the kiyor was made up of the mirrors, fitted together, almost without any alteration at all, so that it was recognizable that the basin consisted actually of mirrors. Although in general, a klihedit should not be used for melechus gavoa in an unchanged form, here on account of the profound moral idea which would be expressed, an exception would have to be made. The point is, we're not going to go exactly with his approach. We'll, we'll use a long, in a similar vein. But the point is, he brings out these, both of these points regarding the difference between the kior and the other things. It wasn't melted, and it was fashioned almost wholly unchanged, where the original features were still recognizable, whereas in all the other things, it was firstly melted down, secondly was mixed, and it was no longer recognizable where it came from. Now we could understand some of what was going on between what Moshe Rabbeinu and God were discussing over here, the dialogue. Moshe Rabbeinu, more than most people, understood the concept of the sublimation of the Yetzirah. He understood very well what we said earlier that a B'mokim Shabbat, a Tshuvahimdin, Tzadikim Gemurim can't stand. He understood very well that a person's greatest mission in life is to subdue, to subjugate the Yetzirah and to transform it. We all, I've mentioned on occasion, I'm not going to go into it very uh, detail, the famous um, story brought down in the Tiferes throughout the end of Masechus Kedushin regarding a medrash, a very obscure medrash, no one has ever found it other than the Tiferes Yisrael, regarding Moshe Rabbeinu, who a king of Arabia wanted to have the painting of Moshe Rabbeinu to see what kind of features he had and ultimately Moshe Rabbeinu said that and his greatness lie not in being born good but in transforming and converting all of the bad character traits possible in a human being and rechanneling them and reconverting them and transforming them into something good and noble that's what Moshe Rabbeinu's essence itself was and therefore Moshe Rabbeinu understood very well the importance of Therefore, the subjugation of the Yetzirah is something which Moshe Rabbeinu had no difficulty with at all. In fact, that's the purpose of the Yetzirah, is to sublimate it, to negate it, to subdue it, to conquer the Yetzirah. And when a person does that, he fulfills the mitzvah of with both of your hearts. The Yetzirah, the Yetzirah. 
But that represents a subjugation and a repression of the Yetzir Hara. It means that you're conquering the Yetzir Hara. However, there's another way of understanding the Yetzir Hara's function. Not only is the Yetzir Hara to be suppressed, to subjugate it, to transform it and to overcome it, but rather the rechanneling and the utilization of the Yetzir Hara can also be an understanding of B'chol Levavcha. Serve Hashem B'shnei Yitzrecha with both of your Yetzers. That could mean how do you serve Hashem with both of your Yetzers? Your Yetzer Tov and your Yetzer Hara. How do you serve Hashem with your Yetzer Hara? So earlier we mentioned Rashi and Davches in Kedushin that says that the greatest mitzvah of all is conquest of the Yetzer Hara. Kvishas HaYetzer. Therefore you serve Hashem with your Yetzer Tov by doing good things. You serve Hashem with your Yetzer Hara by avoiding doing bad things and by the suppression of the Yetzer Hara. Kvishas HaYetzer. That's the concept of the Mokusha Balei Tshuva Omdin that Balei Tshuva are considered on a higher level than Sadikim, Because Sadikim are merely do-gooders. They do good things. Whereas Balei Tshuva not only do good things, but they refrain from doing bad things which they have a great desire to do. And that subjugation of the Yetzir Hara, to be able to conquer and subdue <laughs> the Yetzir Hara and negate it, is a, the greatest mitzvah of all. Therefore you serve Hashem with your Yetzir Tov and with the suppression of your Yetzir Hara. However, one could understand that the idea of serving Hashem with both your Yetzirs means literally. To serve Hashem with your Yetzir Tov and to serve Him literally with your Yetzir Hara by sublimating the Yetzir Hara, by transforming and metamorphing the Yetzir Hara into a force for good, whereby you actually utilize the Yetzir Hara and you rechannel the Yetzir Hara into a good cause. Chazal say regarding the Yetzir Hara Barasi, Yetzir Hara Barasi I have created a Yetzir Hara and I have created the Torah as its tablet. Tavlin means either medicine or an antidote. In other words, Torah is the antidote for the Yetzir Hara. It represents the medicine and the antidote with which to fight the Yetzir Hara. But Tavlin also means spice. I have created the Yetzir Hara, but the Torah is its spice. It's the way to spice the Yetzir Hara and to make the Yetzir Hara delicious. The best example of this, of course, is pepper in a Yerushalmi kugel. We all know that if you eat pepper, it's horrible. Yet, it adds to the Yerushalmi kugel something which without it you'd be lacking. Yerushalmi kugel is very sweet. You add pepper to the Yerushalmi kugel, and it's, it's indescribable. It's only a Yerushalmi kugel. That's the only way you can describe it. When you add pepper, the spice of the Yetzirah, into something like a Yerushalmi Kugel, it makes it something different. We know that amongst the, the ingredients in the Ketores, one of the ingredients is known as the Chelbunah. The Chelbunah is some sort of a spice or something which gives it an aroma smell which joins with it and somehow or other enhances it. The Chelbunah, in last week's Parsha, in Parsha Tetzavarashi brings down, the Chelbunah represents the sinners of Israel that have to join in the, with the Jewish people. 
In other words, the Chalbunah represents sin and sinners. My understanding, again, I don't know if I'm correct in this. My understanding of this is, it's kind of like pepper. Chalbunah on its own has a foul odor. It's something which has a horrible smell. But something with a horrible smell when joined with everything else gives it a stronger, more pungent aroma that enhances the general aroma. Therefore, chalbana, when joined with the rest, when it mixes and adds with the rest, makes it more pungent and more aromatic. If you look, if you look in the medrash that I have quoted over here, in from Bereshis Peraktes, it's on the right, the middle piece. Rav Nachman Bar Shmuel Bar Nachman B'Shem Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman Omer. A lot of Nachman and Shmuel's there. <laughs> says regarding God's creation of the world, Hashem said that He looked at Vayar Alukim. He looked and He saw that all that He made in Tov Maod. And everything was not merely good, but it was very good. And behold, it was very good. That refers to the Yetzir Hara. Can the Yetzir Hara be classified as something that's very good? That's, that's, that's an amazing thing. As the, he says, She ilule Yetzir Hara. Were it not for the Yetzir Hara, Loibono Odombais, people wouldn't build homes, Loinosa Isha, they would not marry women, Loihoilid, they wouldn't propagate and have children, Loinosa Venison, and they wouldn't involve themselves in business activities. If not for the Yetzir Hara, people wouldn't be doing any of these so called necessary things in life. My understanding of this, again, is along with the lines that we just said earlier. The Chelbana is what adds the pungency and the strength to that which is normally good, the spice, what we would refer to as the spice of life. And therefore, the passion and the fire that people have with the Yetzir Hara, when rechanneled and utilized, turns something which is normally passionless, but perhaps good, into something that's very good. In other words, there is tov, and there is Tov Ma'od. Tov means good. Tov Ma'od means very good. It's the Yetzirah that injects the Ma'od into the Tov Ma'od. It's the Yetzirah that, like the Chalbanah, injects the very into the good. People are good. But what are they very good? If there's passion and fire. If they're passionate and fiery about what they're going to do. If there's a little bit of that locomotive there, of that engine of the Yetzir Horror, which is fueled by the Yetzir Horror, then it transforms it from merely being good and dry and plain and wimpy kind of, and you know, passionless into something which is very good, something with a fire, something with a bren. It takes a tov and makes a tov ma'od. So the Yetzir Horror is the ma'od of the Tov Ma'od. It's the very, of the very good. By itself, of course, it's pepper. By itself, of course, it's something which, is, which isn't good. But if you add it to other things that are good, it transforms it and enhances it. The Yetzirah, therefore, is a kind of an enhancer. 
The Gemara in Yuma Daf Samech Tesamet brings down a very fascinating episode in Jewish history. Many times we've discussed who the Ansheik Knesset Hagdol were and what their contribution was to Jewish history. They were a very obscure group. It's not clear exactly when they lived, if they were all contemporaries of each other, what their function exactly was, how do they function, as to what kind of a body they functioned. The Gemara discusses why they referred to as Anshei Knesset Hagdola, the men of the Great Assembly. They were active in the beginning of the Second Temple period, and there were 120 people. Amongst them, over a dozen at least were prophets of Hashem. They were the ones that closed the era of prophecy. They were the ones that ended the era of biblical, um, whatever, writings. Tanakh was closed by them. They created the brachas, they created the Shimon Esrei, davening all the brachas. Here we come to a very interesting episode as to one of their major lasting contributions to Jewish history. And it, and it uses certain psukim that are in Ezra and Nehemiah that seem to refer to what they were functioning as as being the, um, as being the source of this particular episode. The Pasik says, and they cried out to Hashem with a loud voice. What is it referring to? What were they doing? My Omar, what were they saying? Omar Rabbi Tamar Bye bye. They were saying, Oh woe, oh woe is us. This, this Yetzir horror, this Yetzir horror for idolatry, this is what caused all of our woe and all of our destruction. It destroyed the base of Migdash. It burnt the sanctuary. It caused so many multitudes of tzaddikim to be slaughtered, to be killed. It caused our dispersal throughout the world and the exile of Israel from the Holy Land. And it's still dancing amongst us. This Yetzir Hara is still dancing amongst us. What are we going to do? Oh, woe is us. We're coming back. Again, as I pointed out, the Anshikhnes Sagdola lived in the beginning of the Second Temple era. And they were the ones responsible for its building and where it's supposed to be located and the prophets and the reestablishment of what's referred to as the Second Jewish Commonwealth. They were the ones responsible for this. And all of a sudden they started crying and praying for days on end. What are we going to do? The Yetzirah of Avodah is still dancing amongst us. Klum lon. God, did you not give this to us only? Elo likibulei be'agra. That we should receive the reward for suppressing it and subjugating it, as we said earlier, to negate it. Isn't this why you gave it to us? And therefore we say the following. We're willing to give up both its problems and its rewards. You know what? You gave this to us as a reward. We're willing to forego the reward. Take it away. We don't want it. We don't want not it, not its reward. It causes us too much sorrow. It's just not worth the sorrows that it causes. Nofal who pisco a letter, so to speak, 
fell down from heaven to have a cause of emes and it said on it emes it's true God concurs with them as a result so the Gemara says again we don't have we don't have time to go into all of the details the seal of God is truth in other words Hashem concurred with them yes you're right I'll take away the Yetzirah for Avodazar. I should point out, as an aside, it's not the topic now either. Notice what they said, we don't want not it, not its reward. In other words, if you want to get rid of it, you're going to have to give something else up. What is it that they had to give up to get rid of the Avodazar? What they had to give up was the gift of prophecy. If you want to get rid of Avodazar, and you want to get rid of the Yetzirah for Avodazar, it's going to come with a price. There's going to be a cost. And the cost is giving up prophecy and miracles and all of the supernatural stuff. But it was well worth the price. They said, you know what, we'll give it up. That's why this was the era of the closing of the era of prophecy. After this period, there were no longer prophets amongst the Jews. And for that reason, when 400 years later, John the Baptist comes and claims to be a prophet, the Jews will laugh at him. And when Jesus of Nazareth comes 400 years later claiming to be a prophet of Hashem, the Jews wouldn't accept. For 400 years, we didn't have any prophets. There is no longer prophecy. There was Bascal, there was other things, but there was no longer prophecy. There was a price. Miracles, supernatural things, there was a price to be paid. The Gemara then recounts the following. They fasted for three days and three nights. This wasn't a simple thing to accomplish. It wasn't going to be fasting for three days and then eating at night. They had to fast three days and three nights. As a result, Mosru Nalayu, God gave over into their hands the Yetzirah for Avodah and the Gemara says, Nofik Osaki Gurya, the Nurmi Beis Kotche Kedosha. It came out symbolically in the form of a lion cub made of fire that emanated and came out of the Kodesh Kedosha. It's interesting, the Kodesh Kedosha, they no longer even have the Oron. It's almost like this is its counterpart. Because we said earlier that in the Second Temple, they didn't have the Arna Kodesh, they didn't have the Luchos, they didn't have these miracles. Because the Arna Kodesh was the symbol of where prophecy and the Word of God came and emanated for, from them. The Kodesh Kodeshim was now empty of the Arna Kodesh, and from here as a kind of a counterpart, balance, the Yetzirah of Avodazar in the form of a lion cub made of fire comes running out of the Kodesh Kodeshim. When they lost the Yetzirah for Avodah in this kind of symbolic miracle of a fiery lion cub, its counterpart, the Arun HaKodesh, is also lost. And the Novi says, it's interesting, that Omar Lu Novi Yisrael, the Nevi'im that were there, Sechaya HaNovi, who was there, was from the last of the prophets, when he saw this fiery cub, he told the other people, he says, this is the Yetzirah of Avodah Kochavim, of Avodah and what do they do? They captured it. This again, I'm not going to go into the meaning of this part of the Gemara. It's a very fascinating thing as well. It says, as they captured it, one of the fiery hairs of the lion cub fell out. And then the lion began to roar. I'm going to go through this very briefly. He began to roar, and it shook the land of Israel through its length and breadth. They were scared. What should we do now? Maybe Hashem is going to have mercy, so to speak, on this Yetzirah. 
So the Navi said, place it in a lead-confined chamber and seal it with lead so that the sound of its voice as it roars shall not be heard. Okay, that's what they did. Then the Gemara proceeds with the, the following, uh, another fascinating aspect of the story. We're now about four lines from the bottom of the piece. Five lines from it. Omru, Danshik Nesagdolo said, we're on a roll. Things are going good. Hoyl ve'es rotzenhu, since this is a time of grace by Hashem, niboi rachmi ayitzro davera. Let us proceed a little bit further and ask for mercy from Hashem to remove the Yitzhahara for znus, for promiscuity and these things. Boy rachmi ve'amsubidayu. They davened, and as we said, they were on a roll. And Hashem said, granted. Omer Luhu, but when they got to the Yitzhahara for znus, the Yitzhahara said, before you get rid of me, I just want to tell you one thing. Chazu, see, be careful. The katlisu lay, if you kill me, lahu, to this person, I know it's myself, kaliyama, you'll destroy the world. Chavshu, yaimi. So they figured, oh, you know, they'll take the warning, get the heat, let's see what happens. And they captured it, and they imprisoned it, and locked it up for three days. During those three days, they needed a freshly laid egg. Someone was sick or something, and they needed a fresh egg. And they searched through the length and breadth of Eretz Yisrael for those three days. They couldn't find a fresh laid egg. The chicken stopped laying eggs. There's no Yetzirah. The Yetzirah was totally removed. Again, there's always a price. If you want the Yetzirah for Avodah to go away, give up miracles. If you want the Yetzirah for Avodah to go away, give up prophecy. If you want the Yetzirah for Avodah to go away, give up Ksuvim, Tanakh. Give up the Holy Scriptures. And they said, yeah, we're willing to go for that. And Hashem said, I concur. And they got it. You want to get rid of everything? You want to get rid of fire? You want to get rid of passion? You want to get rid of people's physicality? There's a price for that also. The animals are going to lose it also. And you know what? Life is no longer going to be physical. We're not going to have eggs. We're not. You, you want a spiritual life with no physical desires? Then we're going to live in a spiritual world and not a physical world. The animals are going to stop producing. You can't, you know, decide exactly where you want it. And therefore they saw this is not going to go. Amri, so they said, Hey, what should we do? Niktalei, if we kill this Yetzirah, apparently we had the power then of totally suppressing the Yetzirah. Kalyama, we destroy the world. Niboi, Rachmi, Apalgis, maybe let's pray to Hashem, give us half of it. You know, just give us the good part. Heaven doesn't grant half. Very important principle. You got to take a package deal. There's no such thing as, and I always talk about this in Shduchim, it's constantly, people say, oh yeah, I, I, I like the guy, I like the girl, but, you know, just a little bit different. It doesn't work, it's a package deal. You either take it or leave it. There's no such thing as, yes, yes, but, that's in fairy tales. You create Cinderella's, you, cre- you create Prince Charming's. In real life, it doesn't exist. I want this and this and this, but not that. It's a package deal. You want the Yetzirah or you don't want the Yetzirah. If you don't have the Yetzirah, the world is destroyed, finished. If you want the Yetzirah, you got problems. But you can't say, give us only half. Oh, you know what, you should have a Yetzirah only for your wife to propagate. But you don't want a Yetzirah to any other woman. It's a package deal. If you have a Yetzirah to one woman, you have a Yetzirah to all of them. 
if you have a Yetzirah, not to the other ones, you don't have it to yourself either. And therefore Rashi says that they were able to remove the Yetzirah for propagating the race totally. There was no time and no Yetzirah. But then there would be no children. What they did ultimately was, again, it's not really relevant for our purposes, is they filled up the Yetzirah's eye with eye salve to blind it. The Shavku it helped partially that the Yetzirah for incest was diminished. Because prior to this, incest was one of the things that people were in violation of as well. After this, people no longer had desire for their own personal family blood relatives. So they were somewhat able to, to diminish it somehow. What we see from the Gemara is the same principle. That there are some things that are necessary to the existence of the world. And there are two ways to understand the Yetzirah. One is the reward for its suppression and for its subjugation. The other is the usage of the Yetzirah and its utilization by sublimating it, by metamorphing it, if you will, by rechanneling it into not only being Tov, but being Tov Ma'od. And therefore no one says that a person should be passionless. If you look on the bottom left, we'll just take a look at this last piece from Ramesha Feinstein. He quotes on the, uh, uh, he says on the passage which we just said that the men came al hanoshim, literally they came on top of the women to to give their donations. What does it mean al hanoshim? So he brings down shabo muluvoshos betachshitein. The women came wearing their jewelry till the last minute before they when they came to the Mishkan to donate the material instead of bringing like a basket here's all my jewelry they came bedecked with jewelry wearing it and then they removed it and gave it up as a donation what's the point in that? what's the point? says Rav Moshe Kavaltik a lesson Venira Hashem Yisbarach that what God wants, that a person should give, not because he doesn't care for it. He cares for it and it hurts him, but he does it anyway because he overcomes it and controls it. Not because gold and silver are nothing in his eyes. It's not because Hashem wants a person to feel, ah, what's gold and silver, it's garnished, it's nothing, it's not important. A person, as the Chazal say, shouldn't say "ef chazir." Ah, treif. Who wants it? Who likes it? Who cares for it? It's not good. A person should not say that. That's without passion. That's without any kind of. You're a person that's lifeless. You're a limp, lifeless person. The greatest mitzvah, as we said earlier, is kvisha sayetzer, is the conquest of the yetsahara. That means have it and suppress it. Have it, control it. Have it and subjugate it. Yes, I appreciate and I love gold and silver and jewelry dearly. As much as I love money and as much as I love pleasure, I love God and the Mishkan even more. You give your most prized possession away to show that the that, that which you're giving to is more precious and more endearing than the other thing. If a person is passionless and he loves Hashem, then how much could he love him? We know that that Yaakov loved Yosef so greatly 
that for 22 years he was in mourning at the thought of the loss of Yosef. He lost his Ruach HaKodesh. He couldn't, he couldn't live with himself. And he was at, his, his love for Yosef was of such a, an intensity that we can't even comprehend. Yet, when he first meets Yosef, he recites the Shema. It says Yosef fell on his neck and cried, and Yaakov doesn't say what he was doing. And Chazal say Yaakov was reciting the Shema. I mean, it's a very inopportune time to recite the Shema. So many of the Bali Musa explain. Because he was saying the Pasuk, Love Hashem with all of your heart. How does a person understand what that means? When he's there with his precious son Yosef, and he has such an intense and great love for his son Yosef, and he's then able to rechannel and re and, and redirect that love to Hashem, that's Bukhol I love you, Hashem, even more than this. Hashem tells Avram, Kach as Bincha, as Yitchidcha, as Yitzchak, Asher Ahavta, as Yitzchak rather. Take your son, your precious and beloved and only son, the one that you love, to kill a Yishmoel, but to kill a Yitzchak for God, that, that requires superhuman love. Love and take the most that you have and show that what you love is even greater. It's no big deal to knock something and then to say Torah is greater than that. To say that, yeah, secular wisdom is nothing. It's varnished. Torah, that's important. You know what? It's a sort of a lame approach to say that all secular knowledge is worthless, but Torah has value doesn't necessarily mean that Torah has much value because it's, what, more valuable than something that's worthless? <coughs> so what? I mean, it's no big deal. Secular wisdom has great value. It's great. It's tremendous. It's wonderful and it's beautiful. Art, the sciences, knowledge, wisdom, music, these are wonderful things. Torah is even more precious. Torah is even more worthwhile. That's the statement. That says something. So for women to come with their jewelry and say, here, you got it, doesn't express it. I love my jewelry so much that I want to wear it to the last possible moment. I love gold and I love silver, but I'm willing to part with it for the Mishkan, because the Mishkan is more dear and even more precious. This is the way you should have the approach to tzedakah. It should hurt you when you write out the check. It shouldn't be something, oh, I'm such a generous person, it's nothing for me to write a check. I'm stingy, I'm a miser, but I'm going to write the check anyway because it's an important cause. That's the approach to have to all mitzvahs. And therefore, it's the same thing with learning Torah, Talmud Torah. Not that, oh, I got nothing to do anyway. I'm retired. I'm okay, you know. I got nothing better to do. So I'm going to go learn Torah. No. I could be out there earning tons of money. I could make a lot. I could enjoy life. I could be out pleasuring myself. Yes. I enjoy life. I get pleasure from life. And as much as I enjoy it, and as much as I get pleasure from it, and as much money as I could make, Torah is more dear and more precious and more beloved. That's why I always use Eddie as the example. You know, you see a rabbi who's, who's learning Torah, big deal. I mean, what else is he going to do? Exactly. Well, he enjoys life already. Yeah, Ramesha Feinstein sits and learns Torah 18 hours a day. But does he have that dread for life? Could he enjoy these things? 
Look at a guy like Eddie. He enjoys life from cigars to clothes to cars to, to every nourish kite in the book. He's been through it. <laughs> I mean, he's been through it all. He's seen it all, done it all, been there, done that. He's been through all the nourish kite. And he enjoys it. And he still enjoys it. He didn't give it up. Not like other people that, oh, I'm a changed person. I've turned over a new leaf. He never turned over a new leaf. He's still the same that he always was. But he's added to layers of saying, this is even more precious. That's a lesson for people. People don't get a lesson from seeing a transformed individual, so-called born-agains. You see a born-again. Oh, he's a born-again. Okay, fine. I haven't been born-again yet. I'm still in the old life. So you have a lot of born-agains. It doesn't inspire people. There's no inspiration from Bali Tshuva that are born against. There's no inspiration from rabbis. There's no in, in, inspiration from tzaddikim. The inspiration comes from, not from the born against, but the people that have a greater awareness of what's valuable, even though they still enjoy it. I enjoy what you enjoy. I appreciate what you appreciate. I know what you know, but I know more. I know more, and I appreciate more, and I love more. Whatever you have, I love. I love even more. I appreciate things even more. That's the kunst. That's the greatness. The women were symbolizing coming with their jewelry bedecked, saying, I love jewelry. I didn't give up the gold like the Evan Ezra. Who cares for this stuff? I love it and I enjoy it and I would love to have it. But the Mishkan is more precious by me. I love the physical life of luxury, but I want to learn and I want to pray and I want to daven and I want to do mitzvahs. And therefore, yes, that's the approach we should have to Torah as well. Torah is not something to be done in your spare time. Torah is not something to be done in your leisure time. Torah is not to be done when you have nothing else to do. But rather, you could do other things that are valuable. But Torah is more dear and more precious. This is what the women showed us. They greatly loved their jewelry. And therefore, they wore it to the last minute. But they still gave it up to the base of Mikdash because the base of Mikdash was even more precious. Now let's go back and answer the questions that we sort of began with in terms of the dialogue between Hashem and Moshe. Moshe understood all of this. He certainly understood that the ability of a person to transform himself is the greatest possible thing. It's the greatest mitzvah. To subjugate the Yitzhar and to sublimate it and to rechannel it or whatever it is, is the greatest thing. Moshe Rabbeinu's life was that. That's what he did. That's how he became what he became. He understood that the Yitzhar could be tov ma'od. What he couldn't accept was that not changing it, not melting it down, and not transforming it, that it could still be valid. He That he couldn't accept. He couldn't accept, he could accept the choch, the nezem, the kumas, as long as you melt it down, as long as you reshape it, as long as you transform it, as long as you mix it with other things like the chelvana, it's mixed with a lot of good, it's mixed with good things. It's mixed with mitzvahs, it's mixed with a different lifestyle. Then you could transform it and it becomes a metamorphosis of the Yetzir Hora to become the Tov Ma'od of the Yetzir Tov becomes Tov Ma'od. That he could accept. And that's why he did accept these things. And therefore both aspects of the Yetzir Hora can be used the suppression of the Eight Sahara when it needs to be suppressed, the subjugation of the Eight Sahara and the conquest of the Eight Sahara when it needs to be conquered and suppressed, and the rechanneling and the utilization of the Eight Sahara when you can do that and you can create a Tov Ma'od out of the Tov. That he had no problem with. 
to use it as the pepper in the Yerushalmi Kulu, to use it as the passion to do the mitzvahs. But that was all symbolized by the acceptance of the Chochnezim and the Kumas. <coughs> the Maros, the mirrors, although somewhat removed, but the mirrors represent the vanity of life. Why would you have an instrument in the Beis Hamikdash that represents the utter vanity of physical existence? So here is where the dialogue goes with him and Hashem, and that's what Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch refers to earlier. We're saying along those lines, but slightly different. Hashem was saying that Moshe Rabbeinu, in the cosmic scheme of things, even this, which you view as being something which is merely insightful, look at the great good that came from that. The tzavos, the multitudes, the legions of Jews that were created and came from that. Even this was something that is precious and good and had some, uh, some lasting spiritual effects. The kior then has two functions. It has one function like the Kohen does when he attempts to, to come into the base of English to do the avoda, you want to sanctify work, you have to transform yourself, you have to convert yourself, you have to become a new person. You have to be born again. And you therefore go into a mikveh to be reborn. You wash your hands and your feet to be reborn. Calling God on your kippur does it ten times, five times, right? Kiddush line. The sanctification of the hands and the feet, utilizing the kior, is the beginning of the process of avodah. And therefore, yes, that aspect of it is represented by, let's say, the Ebenezer's approach, by the Sforno's approach, Targum Unculus, how these were women that gave it up. They went from a state of the mundane to the sublime. They went from a state of, of being plain and being vain to the, to the point of where they became sanctified, elevated spiritual beings. That's exactly what happens with the Kiar. The Kiar takes the coin, converts him from Chol, from the secular, to the Kodesh, to the sanctified just like these women went through that process. That's one function of, of, the, of the labor. And that represents this idea as well. But the idea then, that something which is viewed in itself in, 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 as, as pure physicality and being merely sensual, whatever it is, that it should have in its isolated form a goodness that's everlasting and spiritual, that Moshe Rabbeinu who ultimately separated from his own wife had difficulty comprehending. Hashem said no. Even this was utilized and properly channeled, not only suppressed, but used as a tavern. The Torah is able to spice the Yetzirah and make it palatable and use it for something which is good. And as a result, the women established great, great multitudes of Jews. The Balaturim then, and to a certain extent the Targum Yonos of Benuziel combines these two ideas. And to a certain extent, if you go into the story of the sons of Eli, who kept the women in the base of Nigdash too long, rather than letting them go back to, to their husbands and have children, made this error. And therefore the Balaturim says, you have Maros Hatsoivos, that these were women that on the one hand were spiritualized and elevated, yet as the Jonas and Benuziel says, they would then go home to their husbands. Whereas the Baal Turm says they were tzovos, they would then go home and become impregnated. And like the initial story of what they did in Egypt, they were able to then produce tzaddikim. The mystery of, of life itself, 
is the fact that some yates or horrors, some evil, so to speak, has to be in the world in order to better fulfill God's great design that he has in the world. And some of this is inscrutable and not understandable. And Moshe Rabbeinu had difficulty with this. To understand and to, and to appreciate the Yetzirah isolated and created into an exclusive item of the Beis Amikdash is something that he had difficulty with. Transformation and subjugation he had no problems with. Hashem said, I have a great plan, a great cosmic design. And in that cosmic design, this has its place. Vinei tovim od. It is not merely good, it is very good. This is what builds life, this is what builds society. As the Medrash says in Bereshus, with not for the eight Sahara, life wouldn't go on. People wouldn't build homes, people wouldn't get married, people wouldn't have children, people wouldn't do business. Yetzirah is necessary to fuel the locomotive of life, to fuel the engine of life, to make society continue and to proceed. The melting down and the conversion of the Yetzirah, to melt it and to transform it, to mix it with other things, to convert it, this is represented by the other Klei HaMishkan, the meltdown of the gold, the meltdown of the jewelry, and its transformation into something holy, this is represented by the other clay HaMikdash. But what Moshe Rabbeinu was loath to accept were the mirrors that were going to be made into a kior, into its own utensil, without any major changes. This utensil, which was composed exclusively of mirrors, isolated from the other material, recognizable from its original state, where the force of the Eight Sahara is still recognizable. This is where Moshe reached his limits, his limits of capacity of understanding. And Hashem said, even this had a holy purpose. Because it was with these mirrors that the Jewish nation was actually created. And this is not really the place to get into this topic, but we know the Medrash says in Tilim Ki Masni Imi that certain mitzvahs always contain within them an element of pure Yetzirah that can never really be totally removed. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the holiest human being, he therefore had to separate from his wife, was in this sense uncomprehending of how this has benefit for mankind. Hashem said, except the mirrors, these had also valuable contributions to make. Therefore the Kiyor has a dual function. The sanctification of the Kohanim is one aspect of it, the primary aspect, because in truth that's the way we are to deal with the Eight Sahara primarily to transform, to convert, to subjugate, to sanctify. But there's another element as well, and that is the shalom bias between husband and wife, procreation, and this is symbolized by the usage of the kiyar in order to ascertain the innocence and faithfulness of a Jewish wife and to restore harmony and shalom bias into the home. This, says Hashem, is also a useful and a commendable purpose. Therefore, the Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel places these two ideas together. That these were women who did sublimate their Yetzir horrors and become spiritualized. 
yet they were able to properly utilize the Yetzir Hara to be able to produce children that became tzaddikim. And therefore the Baal Turim compares it to the situation with the Bnei Eili, where it says, Asher Yishkavun es Hanoshim Hatsoivos. Just as over there, Yishkavun Hanoshim Hatsoivos, Gam Bekan Aidei Maros, through utilization of these Maros, Hoyushoichvin Hanoshim, they were able to to produce children. Kedisa Bemedrish, or Yumiskashtois Bemaros, Umishablis Lubalein, Viniskokimlam. Although the Medrash refers to a historical period where they were used, but in the sense that process is able to continue. The Kliyokar also combines these two ideas in, in a very interesting way. Because as the Medrash says, these Jewish women produced many children, many babies in Egypt. And we know that there was a question as to the parentage of these children. Aspersions were cast on the parentage of, on the parentage of all these children. Because since the Egyptians attempted to reduce the opportunity of husband and wife to live together, and they also attempted furthermore to dominate the Jewish women. So we have a tradition that they were unsuccessful in this. And therefore, when you have all of these children and all of these babies with questions about their parentage and about the sanctity of the Jewish home, the women came and they donated their maros as being the symbol of that which they utilized for their own husbands. And they said, use this as as an instrument in ascertaining our innocence. Because they were able to, to create new generations and produce new generations of many legions and legions of babies, they brought those self-same mirrors that they utilized for mitzvah. Shall you deem that through this means they were able to they were able to produce these legions of babies and take those mirrors, make from them a kior, as if to say, Kilu Omru, Habituru, come and see. Ubuchanunu is bezois and check us out and test us with this if we are not pure and clean. In that we produce those children in sanctity and purity, O law or not. Because the kiyar was meant to ascertain the innocence of the Jewish home. Therefore, says the Kliyokar, as we see from the Balaturim as well as the Yonis and Benuziel, that both aspects come together. That yes, the word Svos is symbolic of all of the children that they produced in Egypt. And the word Svos represents the spiritual upliftment of this generation of women. And together, they, are, they, they have a common thread where they say we were pure even in Egypt. 
and we utilized our Yetzirah properly and we never once allowed Egyptians to dominate us and the children that we bore were born in purity and holiness and check us out because from this we make the Kiyar from this we ascertain the innocence of a Jewish wife who's been faithful to her husband and unlike by the B'nai Eili where doubt was actually cast on the purity of the circumstances there over here these were Noshim Tzavos that were spiritualized to the point of where they had as the Baal Torah says because they remove themselves from the mundane existence of this vain world and the spirit of God was able to overtake them and they were spiritually uplifted and even the children that they bore then in Egypt and henceforth in the future were children that were pure and holy from a holy union as can be determined by the May Kiar of the May Sota, which if the woman is innocent produces better children. This then is the mystery of the Kiar, the mystery of the Yetzirah and its proper utilization where the Torah Tavlin is capable of providing an antidote when it's necessary to negate and subdue and repress the Yetzirah but it also functions as a spice whereby we could make the Yetzirah more palatable to rechannel and to utilize it so we could serve Hashem with both the Yetzirah, the Yetzirah Tov but as well as the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah in both fashions whether it's Kvishas HaYetzer, which is a great mitzvah in its own right, as Rashi says in Kedush Navches, or like these women used the Yetzer Hara with the mirrors whereby they produced the greatest good of all, they produced Jewish children that were redeemed from Egypt. To teach us this lesson, Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, accept the mirrors and make from them their own utensil to symbolize and to teach us this message. Next time we will address another Yetzirah, the Yetzirah that people have the drive and the ambition for amassing great wealth, money and greed, which seems to be a whole different